been a true pleasure to be here with you all, to spend time getting to know a few of you and being able to see this church in person. I've heard about it for several years now and uh, grateful for it and grateful for your pastor and friendship, grateful for your associate pastor and family and the long friendship that we have. And now I have a better way to pray for you all as uh, you are a light of the gospel here in this place. Tonight we'll look at one of those beautiful chapters in Scripture, Isaiah chapter 40. I love Isaiah chapter 40. It has such a crescendo ending. It is full of beautiful, vivid poetry, and it is full of theology. I love Isaiah 40. It is one of those texts that I know you all love and a very familiar text, and so look forward to working through it with you. There's a question in verse 27. It's one of those questions that shows us the honesty of the biblical text. If we had taken the time uh, to read verses 1 to 26 of this chapter, I think we would be utterly shocked at this question. Uh, We would think to ourselves, have they not been paying attention at all to what has been going on in this chapter? Uh, But there it is question. Look at it with me, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded? By my God. Well, we need to look at what led up to that question, and we need to look at what flows from that question. It was back in 2015. Things were moving very strangely. It was the, as this summer all eyes were on Supreme Court as they were handing down decisions, in 2015 it was the Obergefell decision. Seems like all the time we talk about presidential elections in these United States, but in 2015, there was a lot of talk about the presidential election that was about to occur. It was a strange time, and I remember hearing Christians talk as if they felt like the ground was shaking beneath their very They had pulled a Rip Van Winkle, but they had only gone to sleep for about six months, not decades. And when they woke up, they said, where's my country? I don't recognize this place. They said something like Chicken Little as they ran around saying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And so I thought I'd write this little book called A Time for Confidence. 
Uh, not that our confidence is in us, not that our confidence is in the people we elect to office, but to remind us as Christians that we should indeed be people of confidence, but where should that confidence be placed? It's in God. It's in Christ. It's in the gospel. It's in the Word of God. It's in the hope that we have as Christians. We have plenty of reason to be confident, and we must be confident. And so, it is a time for confidence. I'll tell you this from among friends. We sort of had this internal joke down at Ligonier's. We were going to publish this book, depending on how the outcome of the election would go. It would either be a time for confidence with an exclamation point or a time for confidence with a question mark. We just weren't quite sure. But the reality is, it is always a time for confidence. Now, that was 2015. It's almost like those were the good old days. We think about the change that was occurring then. And I I would reference this line often. The rapidity of change, I think, is what was shocking to people. But think of the super rapidity of change in the last few years, in the last two years. And so, again, we need to be reminded this is indeed a time for confidence. We can put our confidence in the covenant, that durable, permanent covenant of God. But ultimately, we are putting our confidence in the God of the covenant. And that's Isaiah chapter 40. And so we have this question. Uh, The question asks, of God, that they have been overlooked. That's what's going on here. Uh, Israel, as you know, Isaiah is writing to a people who are on the eve of exile. His primary audience is the people who will be in exile. He's writing before the exile to an exiled people. And if you go to chapter 40, verse 1, and I don't know if you're like me, but I can't read these verses without hearing them sung from Handel's Messiah. So I always have to, in my mind, I'm hearing these verses sung with too great fanfare, "'Comfort, O comfort my people.'" And what is it? It's a promise. It's a promise. It's a beautiful promise that God is going to scoop us up like little lambs and carry us in His bosom across the desert and back to our beloved Jerusalem. The only problem with that is we are an exiled people. Uh, under the thumb of, at that time, the world's greatest tyrant, Cyrus. And how did this happen? How did wicked Babylon turn Jerusalem into a pile of rubble? How did, how did God miss this? And how does God not see my injustice? How has my right, what is, what is fair to me, how has that been disregarded? 
by my God, this covenant God that we spoke of this morning. That's what's going on in this question. Now, to look at what leads up to it, you find in verses 1 to 11, uh, there's the promise of deliverance. It will come, a straight path. You need to even think about this just geographically. As Israel is carted off into Babylon, literally a straight line between Israel and Babylon is right through a desert, and a massive desert at that. And so the highways of the ancient Near Eastern world went up Jerusalem, up past the Sea of Galilee, and over and across to Babylon, not straight across as the crow flies through all that desert. And think about this. It's not just this is a family vacation, which is challenging enough. This is putting a whole nation, old, young, sick, strong, into a caravan, tens of thousands, and marching them across a desert, the death zones. But here we have it, this promise of deliverance, and a path will be made, a a straight way right through the desert, and God will bring His people home. That's verses 1 to 11. God will bring His people home. And you can go up on your high mountain. You can go, as the spiritual says, go tell it on a mountain. Behold your God, verse 9 says. Behold the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for Him. His reward is with Him. His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. There He is gathering the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom, and He gently will lead those that are with young. God will do this. God will do this. And then what we have in verses 12 all the way to verse 26 is a series of demonstrations of God's power. Uh, You see it first at verse 12, and God's power over creation. Who has measured the waters? Here we go again, this theme of the seas and the waters. All throughout Scripture, who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand? Uh, Who has marked off the heavens with a span, this this great galaxy that is ours and the galaxies beyond ours, and yet they are marked off. Or who has weighed the mountains in scales? When I moved to central Florida, I realized I became a total flatlander. The only hills we have are on ramps and off ramps and no mountains to speak of. We have to go to places to see mountains. And I believe you all here are in the low country, as I understand it. So we have to go places, venture even to maybe North Carolina to see things like mountains. But when we do go places and we do see mountains, we just stand before them in awe, don't we? And we feel how small we are beside the great mountains. We get a sense of our finitude, our finiteness as we stand before mountains. And yet, to God, He holds these mountains in a scale. Uh, What verse 12 is demonstrating is God's power over nature. 
and a nature that sometimes stands over us and instills us with fear. Not God. So the first demonstration is His power over nature, and elsewhere through the chapter, He cycles back to that. But then He turns in uh, verses 13 and 14 to the false gods. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows Him counsel? Whom did He consult, and who made Him understand, verse 14? This seems like we've switched from God's power, what we call omnipotence, to God's knowledge, what we call omniscience. But we haven't. What's going on here is a reflection of the Babylonian pantheism and the gods of Babylon. Uh, The way the religion of Babylon worked was there was this council of gods, and the chief god among them was Marduk. I always have to remember, Marmaduke was the dog in the comic, Marduk was the chief god of the Babylonians. This This is Zeus of the Greeks, Marduk. And Marduk would have a council. And as Marduk would go to make a decision, he would get counsel from his advisors. And so he would get counsel from the the god of of thunder and the god of weather and the god of the seas and is now a good time to do this thing. He would get counsel from this god and that god as he pulled that together, much as a president seeks the wisdom of his cabinet to make a decision. But not God. The demonstration of God's power over the false gods. He alone is His own counsel. These are all rhetorical questions. God consults with no one. No one teaches Him the path of justice. No one teaches Him knowledge. No one shows Him the way of understanding. God, in His infinite knowledge, is powerful over the false gods. You'll read later. Isaiah pulls out a great little bit of of irony, sarcasm, as he talks about the making of idols and make sure you hire a good craftsman, not one who's going to produce a wobbly idol. And so this idol that you pray to sort of teeters and totters as you pray to it. No comparison, no comparison. To the God of the universe. Uh, in this chapter, we're demonstrating God's power over creation. We're demonstrating power, God's power over the false gods. And in verses 15 to 17, we demonstrate God's power over the nations. The nations are like a drop from a bucket. Even, even great Babylon, even great Medo-Persia, and, and not like a bucket, like a drop in a bucket. There is an infinite amount of distance between the power of a ruler on this earth and the power of God so that this level of hyperbole is used to describe the power of the nations. It's like an almost indiscernible drop that goes into a bucket. Lebanon. If you were to chop down all of the cedars of the entire nation, cut it bare, wouldn't suffice. 
to be a sacrifice for our God. All the nations, there is nothing before Him. They are accounted by Him as less than nothing and emptiness. So right off the bat, after this promise of deliverance, this promise that God will restore His people, after these seasons of judgment that come in chapters 1 to 40, we have this demonstration that God is indeed powerful enough to do it. And as we move from verses 18 to 26, we cycle through those all again. And more demonstrations of His power over nature, more demonstrations of His power over the nations, more demonstrations of God's power over false nations. And then here comes the question, but what about me? Does God even notice me? Now, on the one hand, let's look at the, not necessarily the legitimacy of the question. Maybe we don't, that's giving it too much credit. But let's look at something that might be a, a thread of reality that's coming into that question. It's one thing to say God is powerful over nature. It's one thing to God to say that God has power over the nations. It's one thing to say that God is powerful over false gods. But does this infinite, omnipotent, eternal God of the universe, does He notice this little speck of dust that has had life breathed into it and is a person? Does God notice me? Does He see me? We can, we can assert the omnipotence of God. We can affirm the omnipotence of God. But we can still have that little thread that reveals itself, that asks. But in this situation, at this moment, does God notice? Does God see me? Does God see the need for His power to be demonstrated in my life in this thing? That's the question of verse 27. That is the question. Now, the fact that it is recorded for us in Holy Writ is worth noting. And then let's look at the answer that comes along. Have you not known? Been God's people for millennia. Have you not known God at work in your lives? Have you not heard? Have you not heard what was just said? In verses 1 to 26, have you not heard? What I heard a statistic recently that for somebody to hear something, they have to hear it 17 times. Do you, do you remember how you felt like you were repeating yourself all the time? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, He's constantly more powerful than nature. 
constantly more powerful than false gods, constantly more powerful than nations. And in all the, the expenditure of that power, it doesn't reduce God's power by one bit. All that manifestation of God's power does not diminish the omnipotent God in any even discernible way. This God does not faint. This God does not grow weary. This God who searches out everything and knows everything and knows everything perfectly and wisely. This God's understanding is unsearchable. It's a reminder of who God is. It's a reminder of all that He is in His being as He relates to His people. On the one sense, without, without sort of saying, yes, these kinds of questions can be asked all the time. On the other hand, we see that God answers this question. He wants to speak to this question. Yes, he notices. And not only does he notice, yes, he can do something about it. And then he turns to give uh, two examples of this. The first is verses 29 and 30, and it sets up a series of uh, two contrasts. And it's a, um, a sort of poetic way of expressing the power that can be given to the least and the power that can be given to the strongest is a way of saying that every single child of God has the power of God demonstrated and manifested in their lives. And so let, he goes to the weak side. And so he says he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, right? Uh, at the end of life or, or at, a, at an illness or, or somehow sidelined physically, that's the one end of the spectrum to the faint or the one who has no might, what does God do? He gives strength. He increases strength. And then we go to the other end of the spectrum, those seemingly endless balls of energy, of youths. And then that symbol of power, a young man. So we've got the those who will faint and those who have no power on the one hand. And we go to the other end of the spectrum and we have the youth and those young men. And what does God do for them? Those young men, those youths, which on their own physical, dependent upon their own physical power, even in their weariness, even that they fall exhausted, See what comes in final verse, verse 31, that even there God will manifest His power. What the prophet is doing here with this contrast, what he's there showing us, is that too often, and as Isaiah's audience is the case, as we are the case, we rely on our own self, we are rely on our own, we depend upon our own self, our own strength, our own understanding, our own ability to get out of it, to get out from under it, to solve it. We could go back to 2015. We could say, oh, it's, it's all about the election. Oh, 
If you go back to, you can look ahead to the election. It's all about the election. It's all about this senator. It's all about that senator. It's all about this governor. It's all about that governor. For the time being, at least, we in Florida and you all here, we've got great governors. <laughs> but we can put our confidence in those things. We can put our trust in those things. They're the wrong things. Every time I see this, the young men shall fall exhausted. I think of the story of Javier Sotomayor. I don't know if you know who Javier Sotomayor is. She was an Olympic athlete for Cuba. He holds, to this day, still holds the world record for the high jump. I don't know how a human being did this. Ran down, lifted himself up on his own strength, and cleared a bar that was eight feet and a quarter inch. Shattered records. For Sebastian, that's 2.45 meters. Eight feet and a quarter inch. That's strength. I mean, that's power. I'd want this guy on my team. He could do anything. I'd hire him for anything. If you can jump, you can lift your body up eight feet, quarter inch. What can you do? Do you know how high? you know how high Mr. Sotomayor jumps today? I don't. I have no idea. I can guarantee you one thing. It's not eight feet and a quarter inch. He set that record in 1993. But even human strength has its limits, doesn't it? Young men shall fail. A little bit ago, I was running with my daughter, and I thought, oh, this was great. We were out for a run, and this was nice, and we're running along, and all of a sudden, she says to me, we might as well be walking. Well, I'll just give it time. <laughs> and eventually she'll be walking too. But then we come to verse 31. So now we, we have the, the rhetorical questions in verse 26, or verse 28 rather, to answer the question of verse 27. We have the fact that God has demonstrated himself, he's manifested himself. We have the fact that we're not talking here about human capacity. We're not talking here about human potential to overcome what we need to have done. We're not talking about human solutions. We're talking about God. And so we come to verse 31. Soaring, running, walking. That's what I've titled this. I don't know about you, but every time I look at verse 31, and I know this is Holy Scripture, and I know it is inerrant, but every time I look at it, my first thought is, the order isn't right. It's a little anticlimactic. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. That's exciting. They shall run. Less exciting than soaring like an eagle. All right, and now, and now, they shall walk? 
and not faint? That's what my daughter was accusing me of. That's what people do when they no longer can run. They walk. It's absolutely not exciting. It's the wrong order. If I were Isaiah and I were writing this, I'd build it up to the end. I'd say, no, no, cut. Let's try this. Let's walk. And then let's run. And let's end this great chapter by taking off like an eagle. But of course, Scripture is right. Of course it is. And so why is this the right order? Well, running and walking are things we do. Soaring like an eagle is not. So these are metaphors. That's the clue. These are metaphors here. We're being taught something here by the imagery. And here's the imagery. A soaring like an eagle. We frequently need God's power demonstrated in our lives to soar like an eagle. There are the times, those moments where there's the pinch on our conviction, those moments where we really feel we are at the, the end of our rope, the, the surplus energy has been used up, and we really feel like that E light on our gas tank is blinking. And there are those moments where we need God to show up in our lives like an eagle mounting with wings and taking off. But they're frequent. And then there are those times where we need to run. Run and not be weary, step after step, mile after mile, to just keep going. More frequent than soaring like an eagle, if we're keeping up with the metaphor. But not all the time. No one runs all the time. But what do we do all the time? And walk and not faint. We frequently need God's power to manifest in our lives to soar. Occasionally need God's power to manifest in our lives to run. Always need God's power in our lives. You know this. Much of living the Christian life faithfully is in the ordinary. The husband will say, I will take a bullet for my wife. If we were in a shopping mall and somebody opened fire, I would jump in front of her and shield her. I've been married since 1993. I've never had, never had the, the need to step in between a bullet and my wife. But every day, every day, every day, we have to live with our spouses. How does Peter say it to husbands? Live with your wives in an understanding manner. Peter doesn't say, are you willing to take a bullet for your wife? He says, are you willing to live with your wife in an understanding manner? That needs the power of God because you and I don't have that kind of faithfulness. You and I don't have that kind of durable consistency. It's in the ordinary. It's in the mundane. It's in the piles of laundry that need to be done every day 
and we remain faithful. And that's where God demonstrates his power. He demonstrates his power in walking. Now, when I think about this chapter, I think of two things. I think of Handel's Messiah, we all do, and I think of chariots of fire. You can't, you can't think of this verse without thinking of Eric Little. And you know the story where he doesn't run in the heat on a Sunday, and instead he's preaching in a Presbyterian church somewhere in Paris. I don't know where they found the Presbyterian church somewhere in Paris, but they did. And you know what text he's preaching? This chapter. And he, he just got berated by the Prince of Wales for not running for country. And what does he say? The nations are like a drop in the bucket. So powerful. Mount up with wings like eagles. And then in comes the slow motion as they start running across the beach in their British Olympic outfits. You know, the story of Eric Liddell is absolutely fascinating after Paris in 1923. He was born to missionaries in China in 1899. 1900 was the Boxer Rebellion, and his parents, like missionaries in China, were all kicked out. They eventually would get back. He would go back. Then he went to boarding school. Then he went to college in Scotland, of course. Then he played rugby, then he ran, then he won his gold medals at Paris in 1924. Could have done anything. Offered jobs all over the United Kingdom. Could have done anything. He goes back to China as a missionary. 1934, he marries a nurse. He studied what was basically pre-med at Edinburgh as an undergrad and functioned largely as a as a default doctor in his mission work in China, ran schools. Of course, he set up athletic programs at the schools that he ran. He was a teacher, a doctor, a missionary. They married in 1934. Next year, they have a child, Patricia. Two years later, 1937, they have another daughter, Nancy. 1940 ends, I'm sorry, Heather was the daughter in 37. 1940 ends, his wife Florence is pregnant again. And then in 1941, as World War II settles upon the world, all of the missionaries are once again expelled from China. Little takes his pregnant wife and his two little daughters and he puts them on a boat and he sends them home. And he sails. Volunteers his services to an internment camp. This is Japanese-occupied China during World War II. He's in that camp from 1941 to 1945. Early in 1945, he recognizes something's wrong, and he diagnoses himself as having a brain tumor. He dies that spring. What was he doing in that internment camp? He'd get up early before the others, prisoners, and he would clean out the bathrooms because he knew how quickly disease would spread. And so he would have his duties as everyone else did in the camp, but he would get up early and clean. He would care for those who would fall ill and take care of them until 
he himself couldn't. He did this for four years. When Eric Liddell ran, he didn't run. He cocked his head back and it flung wildly in his, swung his arms like he was a madman looking for people to box. He had the worst possible form. I think he was trying to fly. And they called him the Flying Scotsman. And in that, that one moment in 1924, God gave him the power to soar like an eagle, and he did. And he ran. His whole life, he was dedicated to serving God, serving others. While he was a student in Edinburgh, because of his fame as an athlete, he would go around and share the gospel all over Scotland as part of a youth ministry league that he was a part of. He ran his entire life, always busy, always serving, always doing something. And then at the end of his life, he died in an internment camp, cleaning out bathrooms. And the power of God was manifested in his life. The Japanese allowed a band to form among the internment camp. And as he lay dying, the band stood outside his window and played what was his favorite hymn, Be Still My Soul. We're actually going to sing a song similar to it. But you know, Be Still My Soul, that Finlandia tune. Be still my soul, the Lord is on your side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to your God to order and provide. In every change, He faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, your best, your heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. God demonstrates His, his power in the lives of His people. We can put our confidence in God because God is indeed powerful enough. He gives us strength to soar like an eagle. In those moments where our convictions, our, our confessional Christian identity is under challenge, and we need that, that power for those moments God provides us. For those occasional moments. But as we live the Christian life faithfully, in the ordinary, in the daily routines, in the mundane, as we walk, we have this promise. We have this promise. We will not faint. That is God's power demonstrated in our lives. Pray with me, please. Our Father and our God, teach us as this verse commands us to wait upon you. Teach us to depend upon you. Teach us to look to you for our strength. We praise you, our omnipotent, eternal, omniscient, omnibenevolent God. Your power brings life from death. Your power brings light into darkness. May we look to you at every step of the course of our lives. Pray these things through and by your Son. Amen.
Amen.